Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I'm absolutely blessed and grateful to be sitting with Seth Godin. Seth, how are you, sir? I'm fantastic, but getting better. Thank you. Ooh, I like that. Fantastic, but getting better. You are, you know, Zig Ziglar. You are the king of like these short zingers. I mean, it's like this like one sentence thing. It's like, wow, I got to think about that. Where where does that come from? Oh, I think it's intentional practice. I don't think anybody is born with the ability to speak. Uh, We don't know how to walk or ride a bike either. And yet when we see someone walking, we don't say, wow, that person's really talented because we just know that they decided to develop a skill. And I was a mediocre writer in high school. I took exactly one English course in college, but then I just decided to practice. Absolutely. And that's really what we're going to talk about today is about that inner work and about that practice and really excited to to hear about some work that you've got upcoming, which we'll discuss today. But, you know, that's one of the things that really strikes me about you is that you know, truly simplicity is the ultimate sophistication and the way that you communicate. I just admire it because, you know, sometimes people can go on and on and on about a topic and they still don't communicate their point, but you get right to it. And, you know, even your books, um, they're very short, but they're right to it. And it takes you a while to kind of digest the profundity. So I just admire that. And I appreciate that. Well, thank you. If I, if I wrote the books faster, they would be longer. Understood. Understood. Yeah, it's it's removing, it's pruning, right? So with all of that said, definitely want to welcome you to the show. I want to welcome Elevate Nation back because as you can tell, we're absolutely going to take it to another level today. And I want to welcome you back because our mission is to identify and apply how the best of the best raise the bar personally and professionally to achieve greatness in real estate or beyond. You know, obviously real estate is a vehicle that many of us love, but you know, business and, you know, creativity and sharing your ideas could be your vehicle, such as what Seth does and such as what, you know, Seth is really such a great teacher for so many people. So recognizing the fact that when we invest in ourselves, when we practice ourselves, that's when we have the ability to show up and communicate and share our own ideas to allow our vehicles to serve ourselves, to serve other people. So with all that said, you know, we're going to discuss mindset, habits, routines, systems, tactics, tools, you name it from an individual like Seth who has and continues to elevate to a life without limits so that you can do the same or even more for yourself. And this is a masterclass for leaders and those looking to achieve uncommon results and purposeful outcomes through real estate investing, through building businesses and beyond, and really ultimately in their lives. And if you appreciate what we're doing on the show, I'd certainly be grateful if you subscribe to the show, if you gave us a rating, a review. Um, certainly it helps because our goal is to reach millions of people with this message. You don't have to live a life that you tolerate. You can actually live a life of fulfillment, of joy, of curiosity, of adventure, of excitement, of showing up and improving 1% daily. So with that said, I want to introduce you just briefly here to Mr. Seth Godin. If you've been living under a rock, perhaps uh, you may not know who he is, but most of you do. But I'll tell you that he's an author, he's an entrepreneur, and most of all, a teacher. He's a best-selling author and a speaker as well. In addition to launching one of the most popular blogs in the world, which, by the way, I just have to make a mention, you have to go sign up for his blog. Seth.blog, right? Seth's.blog, correct? That's where it is. It's free, 7,000 posts to choose from. It's amazing. Just letting our listeners know that they just decided to start doing landscaping at my building as we began talking. So I apologize for that. 
hey, you know what? This is real. It's uh, authentic. Everyone wants us to be authentic. So we're doing that and uh, appreciate you sharing that. But you absolutely want to sh- sign up for his blog because as I mentioned, I mean, he can write two sentences and it can really last with you for the rest of your day, for the rest of your week and really cause you to act and implement and think through what you're doing. So highly recommend that. Uh, it's absolutely one of the most popular blogs in the world. And he's also written 19 best-selling books, which I've got a few of here. And I highly recommend reading Seth's work. I've just, you know, I've got a few here with me. I, obviously, this is marketing is one of the most recent. We're going to talk about, um, you know, one of his upcoming books uh, coming out here shortly, which you can also pre-order and we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes there, but we'll, we'll dive into that. Uh, his most recent book, This Is this is Marketing, was an instant bestseller in countries around the world. And though he's renowned for his writing and his speaking, Seth also founded two companies, Squidoo and Yoyodyne, acquired by Yahoo. And by focusing on everything from effective marketing and leadership to the spread of ideas and changing everything, Seth has been able to motivate and inspire countless people around the world. In 2013, Seth was one of just three professionals inducted to the Direct Marketing Hall of Fame. In an astonishing turn of events, in May 2018, he was inducted into the Marketing Hall of Fame as well. And he might be the only person in both. So I love that. And uh, with all that said, Seth, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit more about who is actually Seth Godin, the man behind the bio. Well, first, thank you for having me. And um, we're talking in anticipation of winter, November. the me that you read and hear is pretty close to the me in real life. And I don't think that's because I write like I was. It's because I decided to become like I write. And that's an intentional act. And I don't really like feeling like a hypocrite. So if I can write a version of a more thoughtful me, then I try to live up to that. That's amazing. And it's really such a profound thought in itself, right? I mean, it, it takes so much work to get rid of all the excess and all the unnecessary, you know, other things. And it really comes through in the way that you clearly think and communicate. So I want to dive into that. But one of the things that has been so interesting, I'm sure you would agree with me, um, you know, of this year, 2020, I mean, the main topic and main thought in most people's mind is about a virus, right? You know, what, what's going on with this virus and is it spreading? One thing that I love that you talk about, and you've talked about this for many years, way before we've experienced a global pandemic is the thought of an idea virus and that, you know, they can spread like the flu or maybe even like COVID-19, right? So you even mentioned that ideas that spread when, and it starts, I would imagine with the inner work, you know, practicing yourself, investing in yourself, but then, you know, sharing your ideas with others. So talk to me a little bit more about that thought and why is that such an important concept as we proceed into the later half or the later parts of the 21st century? Yeah. So 20 years ago, I wrote a book called Unleashing the Idea Virus. It's free online. It's been downloaded more than 4 million times. Um, The idea behind the book is we know a lot about epidemiology. We know what R0 is. We know how viruses spread. We know that if everyone had been wearing a mask in uh, May, June, July, and August, tens of thousands of people's lives would have been saved. That viruses don't actually have a voice in their head, but if they did, they would be saying things like, wow, I hope I can get from me to that person. And they have dreams and desires that they act out. And we just imagine they have dreams and desires. But human beings and ideas 
we can learn a lot from epidemiology because it turns out that, say, email is an idea virus, that the first person who had email had a problem, which is who are you going to send email to if you're the only one with email? So then you got to go tell other people to go get some email so that you can send them an email. And then once three of you have email, it works better if five of you have email. And so the idea spreads. In the case of email, it's sticky. I got my first email address in 1976, and I still have one. Um, and that, in some ways, is similar to the global pandemic, that if you only had a virus for 10 minutes, we would have burned through the population in no time because it would have faded. But if it's sticky, it sticks around for a long time. So if we're going to try to change the culture, and culture is nothing but a brew of ideas that we have decided to have stick around, the way we change the culture is by inventing and modeling ideas that stick and that spread. And if you don't like the bad ideas that are in the culture, the way to deal with it is to make better ideas, good ideas, and come up with uh, vectors and methods for them to spread and stick. And if you think about the world 200 years ago compared to the world today, we got rid of a whole bunch of really bad ideas. We really did. We've made huge progress in that respect, but not nearly enough progress. And so what are the next ideas? What are the next ideas we're going to make sticky and that we're going to establish cultural resonance around? Because the culture we live in is the life we lead. Yeah. And, you know, you've been such a so ahead of your time and talking about how we're accelerating past sort of the industrial revolution or the industrial economy. You even talk about, um, you know, the factories of the past. And really, when you think of factories, you think of the dimly lit, you know, industrial building, you know, with all these machines around you, the humid sort of uh, environment. But really, you, you even sort of coined the term or thought of really the innovative thought of a factory is more so just stamping out a product or a service in a system that's always trying to be the loss leader or, you know, it's a race to the bottom. And I love the way that you think about that. And it feels like this year has really accelerated us to that change and to that continued adaptation. So I'd love to, like, what do you see next? I mean, is this more of just a compression of time or is this even a further pivot beyond what you had already sort of predicted? Well, if we think about how you spend your day, how many, you know, if, if you go to work for eight hours, it's 500 minutes. Um, of the 500 minutes, how many of those minutes were done, were filled with tasks that you have done before that you could have hired someone for $20 an hour to do instead of you? And if you're like most people, I would say it's more than 400 minutes that we spend most of our time, most every day doing factory work, right? And it's not digging a hole for a latrine, but it's still factory work. And it might be putting checks in envelopes. It might be proofreading. It might be something we've done over and over again where we don't have a unique point of view or talent. And what we have learned in the last 10 years is that if I can write down what I need you to do, I will find someone cheaper than you to do it. And so our job is to figure out how to use systems and technology and outsourcing to get rid of all of the things we do that could be done by someone else. So we can put ourselves on the spot and do things that only we can do. And one of the things that only we can do is be our unique voice and to show up in a way that people would miss us if we were gone. And too often, because we've been brainwashed by industrialism, we don't do anything that people would miss if we were gone. They would just replace us. And you know, 
that store down the street goes out of business and I can go press a couple clicks and get the same thing I was going to buy online. I don't miss the store. On the other hand, if that store is filled with special people with a special point of view who greet me in a way that I can't find anywhere else, I would miss them deeply if they were gone. So as many of us have spent the summer and the fall sheltering in place, what are you really missing, right? What are the interactions, the businesses, the organizations you're actually missing? Because the ones you're actually missing, they're the ones that have built something that's worthwhile. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, a real estate investment firm that focuses on acquiring and operating multifamily assets that provide stable cash flow, capital appreciation, and a margin of safety. Our team, including yours truly, leverages its expertise in acquisitions and management to provide investors with superior risk-adjusted returns while placing a premium on preserving capital. Our mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors maximize their returns by investing in high-value multifamily communities. To learn more about future opportunities, visit cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com. And it seems like the, the, you know, really the catalyst towards, you know, stopping people from taking action is fear at the end of the day. It's fear of criticism or fear of failure. And, you know, one thing that I, I love about your work as well is that you talk about the paradox in risk. You know, folks that feel that if they take risk, you know, they may fail and that could be the worst thing ever. And then, you know, their primitive brain also thinks that, you know, the criticism is the worst thing that could ever happen to them. Could you talk about a little bit about maybe both of those concepts and and the way that you perceive fear as well as risk? Yeah, well, so this is what the new book is about. It's called The Practice. And what I am arguing is that um, each of us has a practice for our creative work. And creative work is not being a novelist, Creative work is simply doing something that might not work, shipping something to the world that might not work. And we have invented an enormous amount of soft tissue to protect us from doing creative work, to come up with a reason why we're not qualified, why it's not the right time, to obsess about irrelevant criticism. We built social media just to make us feel consumed by what strangers think of us to amplify our fear of showing up with something worthwhile. That we fall into dozens of traps. A a couple of them are, we believe all criticism is the same, which is just not true, right? That if if you're a stand-up comic and you bomb one night, but then you find out later that no one in the audience spoke English, (laughs) the fact that you bombed is sort of irrelevant. It was your agent's fault, not yours. And to equate negative feedback with bad work is a real problem unless you're distinguishing who the feedback is from. So I haven't read an Amazon review in eight years. And the reason is simple, because I've never met an author who said, I read all my one-star reviews and now I'm a much better writer. What a one-star review means, and uh, I'm delighted to say J.K. Rowling has way more one-star reviews than I do. (laughs) What a one-star review means is, this book wasn't for me. Okay, great. I don't have to read anything else. You just told me who you are. You didn't tell me anything about the book. And the same thing is true if you're a salesperson. The same thing is true if you're a poet. The same thing is true if you're a parent. That in any given moment, what criticism is telling you is that this person with this history, with this story, under these auspices, it didn't work for them. Okay, fine. Now what are you going to do about it? 
And I believe each of us is capable of having a practice. Each of us is capable of getting better at the skill that we have sought to master. And we got to get out of our own way and stop trying to be perfect because perfect isn't available. And if you have a product or service or, you know, just what you stand for appeals to the masses, it's likely not to be something that people are passionate about. That's another thing that you talk about a lot as well, which I find highly interesting is to really carve your, your niche and your path and, and go for that and don't recognize that everyone's going to, going to give you a five-star review, right? Yeah. I mean, there's 300 million people in the United States and on a good day, my blog gets read by a million people around the world. Uh, at least 280 million people in the United States have never heard my name. Not once. Fine. Terrific. That's not my goal. I am not trying to be Nike or Heinz or anything in between. I am trying to find the smallest viable audience, the smallest group of people who I can help narrate a future for. And if someone doesn't get the joke, fine with me. Yeah. And it's like the, uh, you know, you and I are both fans of the, you know, a thousand true fans, uh, you know, thinking line of thinking it's what can we do to serve our audience and serve the people that really care about what we care about. And if you don't, then that's okay. I mean, we're all different. We're all unique human beings. So I think that's, there's just so much value in that. And the other thing too, that I find um, to be fascinating about your work. And I'd love for you to talk about this a little bit in terms of storytelling, because all of us are, we, human beings were story, you know, sort of visualizing creatures and, and we, we, we make decisions based on stories, you know, so how have you been able to hone your own process or just skills? I mean, in terms of investing in yourself, but how have you been able to show up and be such a, you know, profound and effective storyteller yourself? Well, it's kind of you. I'm not sure it's completely true, but um, I've learned a lot from my friend Bernadette Jiwa, who's written six best-selling books about story. Story is technology. It's a technology. It's a skill. You can learn how to do it better. And I can't tell you in three sentences how to do it better, except I can sell you on the idea that you should go learn how to do it better. That if you are trying to change anything, if you're trying to have a successful negotiation, if you're trying to change the way someone gets elected, it's always because of the story. And, you know, you brought up my friend Kevin's riff about 1,000 true fans. And what's interesting about it is the story has far outrun what he was actually saying. And so I, and I talk about this in the practice. So let me dissect it a little bit. What does it mean to have 1,000 true fans? Because most people don't even have five true fans. <laughs> what it means to have a true fan is that someone will drive across town and give you $100 to see you play the ukulele. What it means to have a true fan is that someone will back your new project without you even telling them what it is, right? That true fans are in it for reasons that have nothing to do with being picky consumers. They're in it because they have decided that their alignment with you and where you are going makes their life better. Now, you can take advantage of true fans maybe once, perhaps twice, but then they're not true fans anymore. And what Kevin was saying is, if you're a musician on your own and you have a thousand true fans, you never need to look for work again. You never need to find a record label, et cetera. And Amanda Palmer, uh, who's quite a character and a friend, um, 
was the co-founder of the Dresden Dolls, which was a punk rock group. And uh, they got picked up by this fancy record label and their album tanked. It sold 20,000 copies and they got fired from their record album. So Amanda went out on her own and she did the most successful music Kickstarter in history. She raised a million dollars in four weeks. Now, if you're a musician and you raise a million dollars in four weeks, unless you're really sloppy, you're going to be fine. And she added up all the numbers when she was done. You know how many people were responsible for the million dollars? 20,000. Wow. The same 20,000 people that got her kicked off her record label made her the most successful music Kickstarter in history. And so what we learned from the lesson of a thousand true fans is, A, you probably don't have any true fans. B, you can get true fans by honing your skill in your practice and see you could take care of them. And you don't take care of them by selling them to the lowest bidder, the highest bidder, or to anybody. You take care of them by showing up in a way that they're glad you did. It's amazing. And um, there's just so much value there. I, I highly recommend that uh, the listener rewinds that and replays that. I know there's so much value in applying that to your own life and thinking through what is your message and honing your message and being clear and concise with that. So thank you for that, Seth. One thing I'd love to dive into is just you as an individual and, you know, as, as Elevate Nation, you know, collectively, we're all about investing in ourselves, investing in the growth of our own skills and our own mindset and our own multidisciplinary approach to our business. So I'd love to know, just kind of backing up a little bit yourself. I mean, tell me in your past, did you have a moment or was there sort of a process to get you to the point where you said, look, I'm not going to accept mediocre. I'm not going to be average because obviously you continue to push the envelope. So I'd love to know if you could just sort of give us a little bit of insight there on, on, on where that came from. Well, I'm average at almost everything. I am an average driver. I'm a below average housekeeper. Um, I'm a slightly above average cook. Um, so this is not about deciding to somehow become some magical Tim Ferriss person. <laughs> it, instead is, could you be a meaningful specific at just one thing? And here are my two suggestions. One, start an anonymous blog. Blog every day under an assumed name, day after day after day. You cannot get credit. You cannot get in trouble. You're just sharing cogent thoughts every day. Do not measure how many people read it. Do not tell anybody you wrote it. Just do that for 40 days in a row. And then the second one is uh, regularly do anonymous nice things. And anonymous is super important because I don't want to encourage anybody to hustle. Nobody likes being hustled. Nobody says, I really like doing business with that person. They hustled me really hard. Hustle, not interested. But if you're sending handwritten anonymous notes to someone, you know, that you met in a store, they gave a clerk gave you good service, you're writing to that person's boss. If you are figuring out how to drop off a teddy bear at a hospital uh, appropriately sealed uh, without getting any credit whatsoever, then you're not doing it to increase your standing in the community. You're just exploring what does it feel like to turn on the lights for somebody else. And the combination of the two, speaking up without credit and turning on the lights for other people, suddenly you discover that all the places you can invest don't have to be places where you get a return on your investment. They're simply places where you can see how to be in the world. And um, this happened to me when I was a teenager, and it's mostly because I have had amazing parents 
Um, but it could have happened if I hadn't had amazing parent. I think that all of this is a skill. And once you realize it's a skill, that's super optimistic because that means you can do something about it. It seems like you're almost investing in your own character by doing that. And obviously there's a, a great feeling that goes along with just doing things for other people without receiving the credit. But correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you're almost practicing, you know, the growth of your own character so that you can show up and, and, uh, you know, not only be more fulfilled with, you know, the way that you're living your life, but I mean, is there, is there anything that I'm missing there or am I saying that correctly? I think it's a great way to put it. I character might be what we do when we think no one's looking and what Mm -hmm. we do when we don't have to think twice, uh, in those moments, that's when we get to be our automatic self and you can build, uh, habits that make your automatic self, the kind of person you'd be proud of your automatic self. No, that's great. And I think that's a great challenge for the listener as well as, you know, what can you do in your life? That's anonymous that you're not receiving credit for, but you're adding value to someone else. And uh, what a great reminder, not only for myself, but so many of uh, everyone else, because we live in a me, me, me society, right? It's all about the selfie. It's about, hey, here's what I did today and here's what I've accomplished. But, you know, I think turning that on its head is, is a very valuable concept. So I appreciate you, you thinking through that and helping us think through that as well. Talk to me about sort of, you know, habits and, and what have you consciously created? Is there anything that you'd point to? over the past few years that you've been conscious about sort of implementing in your own life to really be autonomous in your growth? Uh, People who know me uh, know that I am very consistent about certain areas and drawing bright lines around them. I didn't have a television for 20 years. I don't use Facebook. I don't use LinkedIn. I don't use Tumblr. I don't use Twitter and I don't use Instagram. Uh, I don't go to meetings. I haven't eaten uh, meat or chicken in more than 20 years. And, 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 and. there's all these boundaries in my life. And I'm not doing it to punish myself. I'm doing it so I don't have to revisit them. Right? Like, oh, I don't do that. So I don't have to worry, wonder, Should, is today a good day to go watch some more television? Right? And by doing that, I've, created spaces where I don't have any boundaries at all. And um, I like that combination better than everything being a gray area that demands new decisions all the time. Yeah. It's about setting those boundaries. And, you know, I'm kind of like you where it's like, if I have the opportunity to negotiate with a certain, you know, activity, and if I have to decide on that, it just wears me out. It's exhausting. So I love that you just draw the line and say, look, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. And then here, anything is possible. Anything is possible. And so, you know, one thing that I I know has got to be, and, and obviously this is maybe a little bit of an assumption, but I would imagine that continually you're investing in your own learning and your own curiosity, seeking that, continuing to grow in that capacity, obviously with the work that you put out. And one thing that you've said, and I've, I've heard you say this before, is that learning is magical and that education is also not the same thing as learning, which I totally resonate with. So can you speak on that a little bit? What, you, what do you mean by that? Sure. So those are two things. Uh, the first one is education and learning are different. Education is compliance-based. It is a structure of uh, getting people through coercion to do what you want them to do. Uh, if you have ever asked, will this be on the test? You are in an educational setting. Learning is voluntary and learning changes us. So 
so we learn to juggle, we learn to ride a bike, we learn to engage with other people, not because there's a test or a prize, but because we choose to. So the Alt-MBA, which I started five years ago, is a learning institution, not an educational one. And in 30 days, people change their own lives. We don't change it for them. Um, but where's the magic? Well, the magic is, in Unleashing the Idea Virus, I wrote, if you have an orchard and everyone in town comes and takes an apple, you're bankrupt. And if you have a factory and everyone in town comes and takes a widget, you're bankrupt. But if you make ideas and everyone in town comes and takes your ideas, you're rich. Because when someone takes your idea, you still have your idea. And the same thing is true with learning. That if we live in a culture where people are constantly learning, everyone comes out ahead. No one comes out behind. And that's magic. It's magic because 10,000 years ago, nobody knew how to speak English, program code, fix a broken arm, on and on and on. And sharing all that knowledge actually has created a better world. It didn't create scarcity. I think it's so fascinating and so relevant because our world continues to accelerate at breakneck speed. And there's always a new thing that you need to adapt into being right to be relevant in 2020 and beyond. You've got to continue to learn. You've got to continue to invest in yourself and be ready to adapt. Right. So tell me a little bit, how are you, how are you doing that yourself? I mean, how, what are your favorite ways to invest in your own learning rather than education? Because I just wanted to just stack on the fact that it, it certainly feels like the systems in America and in many other countries are you know, quite behind the times in terms of really learning versus education. So I, I just resonate with that a lot. Yeah, I think uh, almost all my learning, almost all the learning that I've been able to share with other people happens from a place of incompetence. And if you're not willing to put yourself in a place of incompetence, then you can't learn anything because what it means to be incompetent is to realize that you are in a spot where you don't know enough and you are really close to being able to learn more. And so for me, that has meant 35 years of projects, uh, doing something and as soon as it starts working, selling it or declaring victory and going on to the next one. I didn't write the sequel to Purple Cow. I didn't write the sequel to Permission Marketing. I uh, built the email marketing model and I don't run MailChimp and I don't run Entreport and I don't run any of those other organizations. Google's business model is based on permission marketing, but I don't have a piece of it because I'm on to the next thing so I can be incompetent again. And so if you are treasuring your competence, then I'm not surprised that uh, you might feel like you're not getting enough learning. And so when I write a book like The Practice, it's all about serial incompetence, right? Like I have no authorization or credibility to write that book. And the people who read it will be uncomfortable from page seven on because it's about serial incompetence. And it, there's a level of humility that would be required to step into serial incompetence, right? You know, to continue to push your levels of competency and to expand those. And I think it requires, you know, you to stand there and say, look, I don't know everything. And even someone yourself, I mean, with such a really an established career and established name in so many ways, it's, it's telling to show that you're continuing to step into 
incompetence. I mean, do you have to fight against your survival brain continuously still, even with decades of this practice to continue to push yourself in these uncomfortable positions? Or is that, have you flexed that muscle enough just out of curiosity? Well, I would say it's both. There's a reason that I'm not a cardiologist. I don't want a serial incompetent cardiologist. I would like <laughs> the cardiologist to learn on her own time. Thank you. I agree very with much. that. Or a pilot or a pilot. On the- yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, if you've ever sat in a cockpit, if I was a pilot, my eyes would start bleeding after about 10 <laughs> minutes because all the checklists and all the oh. manuals, it's all designed to remove any shred of incompetence. If a pilot is making something up as she goes along, something is wrong. And um, so I don't do any of those careers. But interesting to note, other than Sully, it's really hard to think of any pilots. They're, you know, Chuck yeah. Yeager's gone. Not a lot of pilots that have changed our culture. Because with due respect, because they're very competent, it's also sort of like being a bus driver, right? Like you show up, you do your thing, and no one on the plane can tell the difference between pilot A and pilot B. Yeah. And as a result, if pilots don't have a good union, pilots get taken advantage of because they're fungible and interchangeable. And we are now entering a culture where more and more any of those jobs are going to get done by artificial intelligence. They're going to get done by fly-by-wire and all the rest of it. So what I'm trying to do is stake out territory where humanity is prized. And to be prized as a human, I think, means that you're doing something surprising and something that might not work. Hey, guys, I just wanted to take a brief time out from the show, this incredibly mind-expanding discussion to speak to the high achievers, the high performers. I wanted to speak to those who have a burning desire to go to the next level and beyond. First of all, I hear you and I see you. When I got started as a real estate entrepreneur, fresh out of my W-2 corporate job, I was excited and jubilant to create and design my future. At the same time, my business and life was filled with confusion, filled with fear, doubt, uncertainty, and to be honest with you, sometimes even sleepless nights and hopelessness, even while experiencing what many would have considered substantial success. Ultimately, I mustered up the courage to hire one of the world's top high-performance business coaches to work directly with me on creating strategies, systems, and profound shifts towards accelerating my multifaceted performance and to become an industry leader. After years of investing significant resources into myself and in my business through this process, I am now paying it forward as a high-performance coach to those who feel called to elevate to the extraordinary. Wherever you are right now, you know deep down that you have it within you to be great. If you're someone who's seriously looking to elevate your business, your real estate portfolio, your cash flow, your deal flow, your network, your net worth, your lifestyle, and ultimately your life right now and ongoing for the rest of your life, I have a message for you. Because if that's you, then I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. I have limited coaching spots available to guide people like you who want to substantially close the gap from where you are to where you want to be. These are first come, first serve, and demand high-touch, one-to-one focus from me directly to you. And this is not for everyone. This is only for those who are decisive, committed, and willing to do whatever it takes. It's only for those willing to play full out and invest time, energy, and resources into themselves to achieve greatness in real estate investing and beyond, which is what we're all about on this podcast. This is for those defiantly inspired for transforming as an empowered limitless and unstoppable human being in full control of their and their business's future. 
If that is you, I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. Again, that's coachwithtyler.com where you can apply for this life-changing opportunity. We will then schedule a discovery session where we will directly discuss what's working, not working, and how we can work together to accelerate your future. With that said, enjoy the rest of the show. Hmm. That's super profound. I mean, that's one of the biggest things I think about very frequently is, is the rise of artificial intelligence and, you know, the adaptation required to succeed in this new environment as you continue to see sort of roles and and careers perhaps, you know, replaced by, you know, technology. I I find your work to be so important um, for that and, and reinventing yourself and learning and bumping up against that incompetence, I think is, is central to that. One thing I'd love to know from you, Seth, is, you know, as you've continued to bump up against that incompetence or, or perhaps expand your levels of competence, has there been anything, uh, you know, profound that really kind of, you know, raises uh, an eyebrow to that you have failed in this process that has really set you up for later success out of curiosity? Has there been anything that, that comes to mind? I've had, you know, dozens of failures of commission. Uh, things I have done that have broken things that have disappointed people. Um, but I am much, much more aware now because I've worked at it of my sins of omission, the things I could have done that I didn't do, the people I could have helped who I didn't help, the things I should have said that I could have said that I was afraid to say, the uh, willingness to sacrifice my own comfort or authority to help somebody who really deserved it. Um, and I'm much, much more aware of that than I ever was. And I have a long way to go. As you continue to learn yourself and as you continue to, you know, strive for 1% improvement on a continual basis, you know, is there anything recently profound that you've changed your mind about recently? Anything that you've learned that you've replaced a previously held belief with um, just out of your own humility? Well, I think that uh, everyone has a noise in their head. And the noise that we are the most intimate with is our own noise. And the story we most are comfortable with is our own story. And I think what we have to realize is everyone has a noise in their head. And everyone's noise is different than ours. And everyone thinks they're being rational and no one is, including us. And everyone thinks uh, that their pain is bigger than other people's pain. And everybody thinks that their urgency is bigger than other people's urgency. And once you can hear that noise coming from other people, it will help you see that the opportunity we have is to show up for those other people. To realize we don't know what they know. We don't want what they want. We don't need what they need. And that's okay. But we can still see them and be here for them, even if it doesn't seem fair or right, um, because it is fair and it is right and it is urgent to be a leader in understanding the human condition and that we all share so many things, right? No, there, there's, there's uh, so much value in that. And I appreciate that. Seth, I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to ask you a question that's important to me just because I've become so fascinated with uh, personal growth and just what it allows me to become and the satisfaction that, that I see in my own life and have shared with so many others. I'm curious. I mean, would you say that personal growth is, is one of the most important things in your life? And if so, why is that? And uh, just give me a little bit of insight there, if you don't mind. I'll confess that I don't think about it that way. Um, 
And I don't, I don't buy the 1% thing that much either. Um, I don't think that the things that I do that are important, I got 1% better at on a regular basis. I think the things that I do that are important, I figured out how to be honest with myself about where I was hiding. And if you're hiding, hiding 1% less, you know, like, so what was Roger Bannister's big insight? Because a four minute mile, 1% of 240 seconds would be two and a half seconds, right? I don't think he beat the record by two and a half seconds when he ran the four minute mile. I think it was maybe more than that in the, in from when he started to when he finished. So what was Roger Bannister's leap? His leap was realizing that in 240 seconds, you have to put a step down every time you move your foot. And that if you can plot where each step goes and you can find people to run next to you to model where each step has to match, then just follow the path and you'll be fine. That was a leap, right? That was not, I'm just going to try harder and harder and harder until I run a four minute mile. That's what everyone had ever done before him. Yeah. He said, no, no, no. There is a smart approach to this that involves stepping away from the comfortable thing, which is saying to the coach, I'm just trying harder. And instead saying, I'm going to try different. And it might be an epic failure and it will be in front of a lot of other people because all of my trainers and pacers are going to be there when it doesn't work. Right. And, you know, I don't think John F. Kennedy could have helped us visualize going to the moon if he had said, first we will go into orbit and then we will go into a bigger orbit. Then we will go into slightly bigger orbit because then there would have been 10,000 1% steps to get to the Mm. moon. No, we didn't go straight to the moon. And in fact, I write about this in the practice as well. There was a real risk. Credentialed scientists who thought that the top 10 feet of the moon's surface was dust. And that when we landed on the moon, we were never going to be able to take off again. (laughs) And if you look at the pads on the lunar lander, they're bigger than they should be. And they made them bigger because they were worried about the dust. But the really cool thing is, two years before we sent Neil Armstrong and the rest to the moon, we sent an unmanned vehicle to the moon, which I didn't know. And one of its jobs was to see how dusty it was. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I love that. I think that's a great capstone to put on this conversation because tonight, if you look up in the sky, you'll see there's footprints on the moon. And that was done when the sum total computing power of NASA was less than what's on your phone. Yeah. And so the question is, where are you going to put your footprints? Because you can have all the excuses you want, but they're not legit. You got to decide where you want to put your footprints. That's huge. I, I, I will tell you, I just learned a lot there and I appreciate you being the teacher and stepping into that role uh, for this conversation. Seth, I want to be super respectful of your time. And before we let you go, I want to jump into our rapid fire section. We call it the rare air questionnaire. It's all about continuing to raise our own bars, right? And, and okay. accept more for ourselves and make those leaps, right? Instead of just saying, hey, how can we scratch and climb? How can we make giant leaps? for mankind or for ourselves or whatever, what, whatever is important to us. So with that said, I'm going to ask you a question that I think would probably be a fairly challenging question considering how well-read you are. Uh, tell me, if you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past several years, what would those be? Um, 
I have a short list uh, for the people who are listening here. The Art of Possibility and The War of Art are two books I would have you buy immediately. And then the third one is uh, a book that changed me when I wrote it. And that book is called Lynchpin. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we will absolutely put links in the show notes there of all three books. And of course, all of Seth's work that you definitely want to dive into. So thank you for that, Seth. And aside from our discussion today, Seth, how would you say is what's the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis? I'm really keeping track of who else's life that I elevate on a daily basis. That's my best skill. And some days I don't do it very well, but I'm always trying. Well, and that leads me into my next question, which is what's the best way that you elevate others? Obviously, you talked about anonymity earlier and just investing in doing good things for other people. But how else would you expand upon that thought? Well, ideas spread far and fast. And if you're putting toxic ideas or selfish ideas or maximizing shareholder value ideas into the world, you got to own that. And if you can figure out how to put different ideas into the world or leverage ideas from other people to share them, we can own that too. Culture is what we make it. And if you don't like the way the culture is, don't blame CNN and Fox. Make your own news. Make your own story. That's amazing and so inspiring. And uh, wow, uh, Seth, I really, really appreciate you taking time today. This has been an absolute privilege and a pleasure uh, to spend time with you. Before we let you go, is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you share with Elevate Nation today? Well, one of the things I learned about being on podcasts is you should make every answer as if it's the last answer of the podcast because <laughs> you never know when someone's going to turn off the radio. Certainly. Uh, so I'm going to stand by everything I said and just encourage people to go make a ruckus. Absolutely. Go make a ruckus. And I know, Seth, you're continuing to do that. And it feels like every word that you say is the last answer, which is uh, what I admire so much about you. I really appreciate that. Um, with all that said, where can the listeners find you? I know your, your, um, your blog is obviously one place, and we will put a link in the show notes of how folks can pre-order the new book, The Practice. But tell the listeners how else they can uh, find you. Uh, the Workshops are at akimbo.com, A-K-I-M-B-O.com. And my podcast is at uh, akimbo.link. And that's enough to keep you busy for a long time. Absolutely. And the practice launches on November 3rd. Uh, so you definitely want to go ahead and pre-order that and check out all the rest of Seth's work. Subscribe to his blog. He's doing some amazing things. I want to, you know, really note that, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about taking action on what you learned today. So what are the top three key distinctions and what can you do to re-listen to the show? Share this with someone else because the teacher like Seth is who learns the most, you know, who is it that you can share with and who can you help, you know, share and spread some ideas and take massive action within your own life. And, uh, with all that said, Seth, I really, uh, just wanted to thank you again for being on the show today. A real pleasure. Keep making this ruckus, Tyler. It's good to talk to you. Absolutely. Elevate Nation, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.